travel has been in our DNA since time immemorial, right? People migrated for sustenance and food and then for trade and over time to learn and expand their horizons. What chance do we as humanity stand if we can't go somewhere? Welcome to The Modern Hotelier. Both hosts were honored as top 100 influential people in hospitality. We're bringing you interviews with industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators who are shaping the future of hospitality. Whether you're a seasoned hotel professional or just stepping into the industry, our goal is to provide you with insights, knowledge, and trends that will empower you, the modern hotelier. Thank you for tuning into the Modern Hotelier. We had a great conversation with Stuart Greif, the Executive Vice President, Chief Strategy, Innovation, and Operating Officer at Forbes Travel Guide. David, what was one of your favorite things about our conversation with Stuart? I think it was that there were so many things that we covered that were great. We talked about technology, we talked about sustainability, talked about labor issues, and and really Stuart's background just really kind of, I think for me, helped understand more how Forbes is looking at things and how they're making sure that the quality is there. What, what did you think, Steve? You know, I, I, I love the technology side of what he talked about. I mean, yeah. we've had so many people talk about AR, VR, MR, and his perspective from working with those things at Microsoft right. and other innovative companies, his perspective is just, I don't think we've ever had on somebody quite like Stuart. And it was, it was great to hear his thoughts. I agree. All right. Enjoy the episode. Today we have on Stuart Greif. Stuart has over 30 years of global experience focused at the intersection of hospitality, customer experience, and technology. He's currently the Executive Vice President, Chief Strategy, Innovation, and Operating Officer at Forbes Travel Guide. Welcome to the show, Stuart. Thank you, gentlemen. It's great to be here. I love, uh, I love your podcast and what you do. Thank you. So, Stuart, we're going to go through three sections going to ask you some lightning round type questions, learn about your background, and then get into some in- industry topics. Sound good? That sounds fantastic. All right, great. So what was your first job? My first job was actually selling strawberries when I was seven around our neighborhood. I was kind of entrepreneurial. I enlisted my sister and other folks. I figured out I could pick them locally and sell them for less than the supermarket and have something fresher and beautiful. And then in high school, I worked in everything from an ironworks to washing dishes in a restaurant to being on videos as a spokesperson for a company and even a skate garden and ice rink, pretty much anything and everything to help learn. And even a factory, all of the cubicles that we love so much, I put them together. Wow. What's your favorite city? Oh, man, it's like your kids. I know you guys love superlatives, but Kyoto in Japan is mm-hmm. one that I lived in uh, and will always be near and dear to my heart above and beyond for personal reasons. Got it. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Probably not to take advice. No. Um, (laughs) I, you know, I think advice is really personal and it's based on someone listening to you, but I think the best I ever got is, is from the Honorable Walter Annenberg, who is a philanthropist, uh, court of St. James and somebody an opportunity to meet. He said, always respect the other person. He used fellow, but I, I use person. I think that's true in life as well as in hospitality. If you could trade places with someone for a day, who would you trade places with? Oh, wow. You know, I'm really happy with my life. I trade with myself and not go anywhere. I, you know, personally and professionally, they're ups and downs, so I'm not going to Pollyanna it. But uh, no, I mean, uh, 
maybe somebody else to get their perspective would be what I'd want to do to walk in someone else's shoes, but nobody's specific. Okay. What's on your bucket list? Ah, oh, man, what's not? You know, the old saying, you, you, you never step in the same river twice. I would love to go to Paris with my wife because despite her global travels and having been in the travel industry, she's actually never been to Paris. So that would be the priority. What's a secret talent you have that most people don't know? <laughs> um, well, then it won't be a secret anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I, I love to cook. So that's probably one people are a little bit surprised. I kind of geek out on it, including having sous vide and all sorts of equipment yeah. that at the time in New York, you should never have an apartment. I now live in California. So cooking would definitely be the hidden talent. Got it. All right. Last one. So who would you rather be? Superman, Spider-Man, or Batman? You got to pick one. Ah, Superman, Spider-Man, or Batman. I would say Superman. I, I just think across the board, he has the ability to fly. I could travel wherever I wanted. Yeah, Everybody <laughs> else has got to take time to get there. I love it. I love it. That was great, Stuart. So now we're going to find out a little bit more about your background, what makes you tick, things like that. So you grew up in East Windsor, New Jersey. How did that kind of shape you into who you are today? Yeah, I mean, I think you guys got a sense of the self-deprecating humor. Um, since we're talking <laughs> personal, as I warned you before we hopped on for your audience, my company does cover the first six weeks of therapy after this podcast. After <laughs> that, you're on your own. Um, I think that sense of humor, the humility. I mean, um, you know, there are people like John Stewart and Frank Sinatra and Bruce Springsteen that came from New Jersey. It's this kind of mix, I think, of working class, blue collar, white collar mix of ethos of, of humility. We're not New York City. We're not Philadelphia. So I think it really shaped my character and who I am. So you graduated from, I hope I said this right, Wesley Lynn? Yeah, Wesleyan in Connecticut, which was uh, undergrad and uh, a, a pretty activist school. My way of uh, staying single was I walk around campus. I played ice hockey with my hockey jacket, and nobody would want to talk to me. But it was kidding aside. It was a great experience because it exposed me to difference in so many different ways. And in high school, I also had an opportunity to live in Japan to see life through another perspective, to be in a place I didn't look like everyone. And that just, that and Wesleyan really broadened my horizons. How did you get interested in East Asia, specifically Japan, as a, you know, from an educational standpoint? Yeah, my, my father worked for a Japanese company. And at the time, Japan was ascendant the way China, many people think about today. And I had this summer scholarship that was like applying to school. I was fortunate to be one of four to spend a summer through this program in Japan. And I came back wanting to learn and understand more. So it was as much that curiosity and learning about others. And the Japanese sense of service that's imbued in the culture, I think, is also something that's highly resonant for me and with hospitality broadly. I love that. I love that. And then you went and got your MBA from the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, and you focused on strategy and general management. What made you decide to have that as your focus of your MBA? I was going to say, probably because I couldn't do the math to do finance or accounting. But uh, um, earlier in my career, I went into consulting. I wanted to experience a lot of broad, different things. And ironically, um, when I was in consulting, I was living out of a hotel in Midtown Manhattan for 18 months in a 22-month period, five, six days a week. And that family of people at the hotel became my family. 25 years later, I met the concierge happenstance at 
Forbes Travel Guide event last year. He turns out he's the general secretary for Lake Clay Dior. So even then, growing up, I didn't have a lot of money to travel, but that really started this resonance in the industry, even though it was as a guest, and then much later coming back to it. That's great. So that's good to get your background. Now we're going to go into your career. This was really interesting to me. Your first job out of college was at Anderson Consulting, Mm -hmm. which is now Accenture. Obviously a huge company now, but what was it like in those early days before it was this enormous company? Oh man, it's crazy. I talk about social commerce oftentimes and, you know, we forget we say something 20, 25 years ago, it seems like you know, kind of yesterday in some ways, or it's abstract. But when you think about like at the time, I had a laptop that had a roller board that was black and white, and we were going into Lotus Notes and everything was a dial up modem from you actually had a landline and that horrible sound. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Terrible. But but it was, it was technology was transforming the world. And so we were looking at how do we free up, which I think is still true in a very different way, even with AI. How do we free up people from all the, the time intensive stuff so they can spend more time on the things that matter in hospitality, the guest experience or connecting in human, which, you know, human connection is never going to be replaced, even though tech may enable it or be welcome. Ultimately, we're all still human beings. We didn't uh, evolve over all these eons and in the span of 30 years suddenly become cyborgs. That's just, you know, not how it is. Right. So. That's great. And then after you graduated UVA, you were hired directly by the CEO on a leadership program at the McGraw-Hill companies. That sounds like a wild experience. What was that like? Yeah, it was great. I got to see a lot of different things and work around the world and financial services and education. And most significantly, we acquired J.D. Power and Associates. So I moved out California. It was in Santa Monica, nothing against other locations, but to leave New York City, it had to be for something. And then I realized why nobody tells New Yorkers how amazing the quality of life is in Southern California. The weather is because we all would have been there sooner. (laughs) But I got to lead global travel and hospitality as well as other areas, strategy, biz dev, M&A. And that's where like it really ignited my passion. I worked globally with players in Dubai in Asia Pacific, all around the world, as well as North American countries in Europe. And it's really that intersection of guest experience through the guest's eyes and and what makes that and and, and just how dynamic, because things change over time, right? Like there was a point where an HDTV was the biggest wow factor, right? And so I love the fact that, you know, it's kind of like answers change, but questions endure. And the same thing is true about the guest experience. We can say the same things about human connection, but the means and the ways we do it will continue to evolve as the world changes. So in 2007, you went to S&P for a couple of years. Then you went to J.D. Power. You were promoted Mm -hmm. nine times in five years, worked your way up to VP and general manager. What were your focuses there on global travel and hospitality? Yeah. I mean, the the basis for all of those promotions in, in these other industries was because of what I was doing in travel. And, you know, I think it's true in every business is you have to focus on what adds value for the consumer and and ways to continue to evolve and ask questions about, you know, how are we doing and what are the types of needs and pain points they have, you know, in startups, which I uh, play some role in sometimes, you know, there's a question of, do you want to be the vitamin, the thing that makes people feel good or is upside opportunity, or do you want to be the painkiller? And most times the pain has cost and real challenge around it. So most times you want to be the painkiller. And I, I found a way to help raise our profile. I recognized we didn't have budget to, to get out in the industry, but 
Smith Travel Research, STR, Cornell's hospitality did. So I found a way to barter our data that they could research and, and share perspective in return for value that helped raise our profile. And I also changed the, the understanding. We were a research firm that said, hey, satisfaction went from here to here. The question is, what's the story? And the story was different for the audience on CNBC Squawk on the Street that I shared with versus NPR versus industry trade. So I think you have to understand your audience from communication and adapt and understand what each segment or audience really cares about to, to be resonant and and to be relevant. Absolutely. That's great. And you then started your own company that I believe, was it acquired by Microsoft? Um, no, I worked with um, them. So I worked with private equity, with startups, with traditional companies. I helped actually the private equity company that bought JD Power acquire it. And then I also worked with, I did, um, was an early beta te- tester for Airbnb trips, which you know, being in the hotel industry, I have mixed feelings about in retrospect, but I, I love our industry and innovation broadly. And I worked with a variety of top brands at Microsoft. I'm thinking there are some things I can't talk about, but we worked with one of the world's biggest hotel companies in the world where I was doing this for my own business as an advisor to look at what's going on in, in computer gaming. So the fact that when kids game together or, or adults, they spend six times the time and four times the money and there's real-time data and, and the game is changing. How could you take that to enterprise, to one of the global hospitality companies and apply that to their loyalty program or when you're on property? So if people have a wedding block, could you connect them and say, hey, if one more person joins the spa tomorrow and two more people join a free whiskey tasting because people spend money at the bar after, we'll upgrade the bride and groom to, to a nicer suite and give them a bottle of champagne. So a lot of stuff that I can't talk publicly about, but um, it was a great time to help add value and learn in between more significant, longer duration roles. That's great. And then after Microsoft, you actually went to a, a startup, Amperty, which... Yeah was recommended to you by uh, Satya Nadella, which yeah. is Microsoft's CEO, right? Satya, yeah, I came across this little company that had a beta product and one or two nascent brands. One was Alaska Airlines and the other was an LVMH company in Spirits. Put them in touch and, and we spoke to them and we could see they fundamentally solved the hardest part that everybody kind of skates past when it comes to customer data. And we, we don't need to go technical. What's important is they had one or two clients and myself and my colleague, Shane, who's still at Microsoft in travel, really became evangelists. And then I joined them. They had one or two betas. I joined them when they had about 12 clients. I helped them uh, get in Wyndham CEO and the CMO have cited them publicly and their impact in earnings as well as at events. And Amparity now is 400 plus brands around the world, including many hospitality players uh, and, and travel players as well as retail. And so we had Starbucks CEO on the board at one point, and it's the credit to the founders and the founding team. Then there became a point where it was clear they needed people that were SaaS sellers, people that are salespeople, which I am not a professional seller. I have huge amount of respect and esteem it's a personality as well as a important skill set not to be underestimated. So we had a great way to part ways. And, and that kind of led me to Forbes Travel Guy. Yeah. So you've been at Forbes for four years now. Tell us what you're focusing on as executive vice president and chief strategy, innovation and operating officer. Well, the really great news for us is we have tremendous leadership between our chairman who founded WebMD and himself 
has been chairman of, of this business and owner for, for quite some time and is expert. And the CEOs we had, and even before you probably know, Jerry Inzarello kind of helped us expand globally. There was a point where we were only in six and set, six to seven markets and we're in 85 plus today. And then Philippe Boyan, legendary hotelier, you know, as well as being SLH and uh, Belmond, among many others in his career, really helped provide the leadership, you know, as we went through COVID, but also structurally to take that. And, and that primed it for now Herman Elger, who, as you probably know, you know, whether, you know, Baccarat, Montage, Ritz-Carlton, you know, over the decades, he opened many Ritz-Carlton's around the world, you know, is just a, a world-class five-star hotelier as well. And, uh, you know, he's really leaned into growth. So it's this partnership, I think, with all these different experts and complementary folks, we're certainly expanding what we do, which just for your audience, um, you know, we are the global leader when it comes to standards and ratings and luxury and broadly and service excellence. And we have tremendous trainers around the world. I like to say they're the TEDx of the training world. We just had our 2024 rating release, over 2,000 hotel, restaurants, and spas that we, and ocean cruises that we directly evaluate in person, in detail across 900 plus standards. And of course our standards evolve, right? Answers change, questions endure. And so we're particularly proud. And then we've layered these digital products and services to say, how do you get a little bit of our best expertise in a daily stand-up, a little exercise? Because we know training is wonderful, but unless you practice and, and most folks want little micro bursts, a little, little snack size bite to keep fresh and, and sharp each and every day. So we complement that with everybody else and their efforts within their own brands around the world. Well, that was great learning about your background. Now we're going to get your thoughts on a few industry trends and what's happening on in the hospitality industry. So currently, I was so surprised to see how many different organizations you advise or mentor. What are some of the great things and exciting things on the technology development side of hospitality that you're seeing? Yeah, my wife says I should get new hot you know, hobbies. This is uh, my passion <laughs> before hours, yeah. after on weekends, you know, in addition to, you know, substantial, you know, commitment at work. But yeah, I just, I, I want all of us to do better. I think I want to say that first is, yes, there's competition in the market. AI is certainly transformational and chat GPT. It's not overnight, but over five to 10 years, I think that is. And, and many people in the imagination think of, okay, the consumer side, and there are all these kind of personalized um, trip planning or how I book my trip. The transformation is really happening on the B2B side. It's what I said at the beginning. It's how do you wrap and augment people in the industry, whether you're a travel advisor, whether you're uh, working in a hotel. Could you imagine, even if you're doing finance or sales in a hotel, simply saying, hey, can you create a chart that shows me the monthly trend by salesperson and compare it year over year? And could you also give me a visualization of that in whatever format? So I think in a lot of ways, it is going to, over time, not immediately, change the game. It's also when it comes to developing products. It's it, you know, My friend Gilad Berenstein is on the board of virtuoso and uh, advisor to the travel corp among many things and also plays in startups talks about as the great commoditization that it is enabling all of us to have kind of superhuman intelligence i don't mean lowering the bar i did grow up in new jersey so thank you for you know instead of rate we can't raise up thank you for lowering it so i could reach it but it does enable you know people that don't have to have 
you know, decades of experience to access expert level understanding as a starting point. There's still going to be a need for people, but just like the industrial revolution and all the other things that have changed, we too will adapt in my view that this is going to take a lot of the time intensive administrative and ideally free us up to spend more time on our guests, more time on the creativity and the experience, more time on raising the bar of what it means to create connection in what we do in hospitality. And, you know, you talked about AI and chat GPT. I mean, just seeing where chat GPT has gone from 3.5 to 4 is, is quite a big jump. Where do you see AI going over the next, I'm going to just say three to five years? Yeah, if you look up um, an article Skift wrote and search Microsoft AI and my name, you'll find an article from 2017 where Sean, uh, who's a Sean O'Neill, is a wonderful journalist and leader there, uh, covered me talking about this. And I talk about a lot of the things. The reality is that the technology oftentimes is there much faster than we as human beings and organizations, and from a risk are willing to kind of play and experiment. So I think some of the things that I talked about there, in my defense or to my credit, I wasn't Babe Ruth picking my shot. I was just lucky. I said, I think it's going to be about five years, right? That my friend Shane from Microsoft often talks about the technology goes like this and adoption goes like that. So I think we have time. And the thing is the power of it may go exponential, but our capacity, our understanding, our use cases you know, when the internet st- first came out, doing a website was stupid, expensive, complicated, and it wasn't standard. No one could do it. Same thing with apps. But over time, more people understood the technology, more turnkey products and services came out. It became more kind of mass institutionalized to enable us. And I think the same thing will happen. My advice to all of us is that breathe, number one, Number two, 30 years ago with the internet, you were still giving great experiences. And think about all the technologies from the internet to like messaging apps, to apps themselves, Facebook, Instagram, social media now, right? All of that, including AI, it will play a role, but it's still a tool. It's just a tool to help us do our job better, more efficiently, and free us up to focus on other things. So I think that the important thing is not that you have to jump but you know, play around with it. Just today, there's this new video capability that was announced from OpenAI and Microsoft, where instead of just an image, you can type text, show me a video of me walking through Kyoto to my favorite ramen shop you know, in fall with leaves slowly falling in, in this district. And it'll generate a very realistic video. Now, I think the other side of AI, which is relevant to Forbes Travel Guide is, and this is true of influencers too, the more there is kind of noise and the opportunity for deep fakes and fake reviews at mass scale and things, the more important, the really verified voices that are known and trusted and independent will come through. And some of that happens over time. But when you come to Forbes Travel Guide, for example, you know that those hotels have been inspected individual. I'm not negative. In fact, I've got a great view on social commerce I'm happy to touch on later in in the conversation, but who is the trusted source and and what can I believe becomes even more relevant in an era when you can't quite be sure what you can trust. Absolutely. And kind of going on to another 
new technology. Uh, you know, we've been talking about AR, VR, MR for, I don't know, since we've been doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. And the opinions vary on how it's going to be implemented into the hospitality space. I'd love to have your opinion on how we're going to see this mixed reality come into hotel and hospitality. Yeah, that's a it's a great question, Steve. I appreciate that. I, I was a early advisor to um, a AR VR company. I worked, you know, in travel, and then also that was called Escape. And I also at Microsoft worked with Hololens, and I wrote about how Microsoft enabled my wheelchair bound father to visit the cosmos and be an astronaut and climb the, the Andes. So I have a very positive view of it. I, I while there might be some cannibalization, yes, if somebody's going to do it. You know, VR is not going to replace what it feels like to slink into the hot tub or step into the ocean or bite into the food or hear the sounds of a local or the the smells of fresh flowers. So I actually think it is going to increase exponentially the interest and demand. I think younger people, students where financially or physically they can't travel, they might be in a developing country, the ability to go places all over the world and get a sense of what they're like and want to then spark that interest later. Older people, people that physically can't go or places that are maybe dangerous or geopolitically aren't open to be able to experience. From sales and marketing to whet the appetite and see what you're and preview what you're going to experience. And, and my view is that Apple is going to accelerate that I think Meta and Zuckerberg learned you can't force acceleration of a technology up mass adoption faster than society and people and and the form factor and price allow. I think Apple, because of how widely dispersed and their their products on the consumer side, longer term, I don't mean with the current $4,000 version, that's still early, but I think they will be an accelerant. It's still, I think, a five to 10 year horizon because of the technology form factor, people not walking in front of cars, you know, when they think they're like skiing down Mount Everest, right? There, there are a lot of things that need to get, you know, worked out. But I do think over and generationally, you know, kids that are growing up, Apple solved the like not vomiting, I think, is a prerequisite for most products, right? <laughs> yeah. um, unless it's unless it's a roller coaster. Fair yeah, enough right. at an amusement park. But, you know, that could be a badge of honor. So I think they figured things out. I do think it's coming. I think it's very positive for us overall. And I'm excited by it, not afraid of it. Yeah, that's funny because last night I was at an event in downtown Phoenix and that's really the hotbed for Waymo and the driverless cars Mm -hmm. and taxis. And, you know, there was just, it was funny. There was a couple that was getting in it and they're like, oh, we're nervous. We're nervous. I said, don't worry. I only know know a couple of people have been killed driving in those things. (laughs) (laughs) Go have a good time. And they they took off and that was that. But anyway, but yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I've been in Phoenix six years and six years ago, they were still driving around and it's still not. You can remind him that worrying and sadness is really for the survivors. So, so. <laughs> all right. So we're going to move on to a couple of hot topics. So you are an advocate for female D E and I and traditional unrepresented founders and leaders. What inspires you to advocate for that? Yeah. I mean, I think my sisters and mother broke me in uh, growing up, but I think it's a deep and b- abiding conviction when you see uh, people that, you know, uh, not having the same opportunities as you and and you know them well to be equally you know smart capable etc. You know, my father is a great father as well. What I'd say is three things here. I think we need to flip DEI and things on its head. 
there was just a New York Times op-ed, two Harvard Business School professors, so not, not you know, Stewie's uh, School of University of Central New Jersey, right? Harvard Business School professors, another Harvard-related researcher who uh, put out that, you know, yes, teams that aren't diverse perform well, but the Delta, the, the huge gap of diverse teams outperform when you're inclusive is something that if I were to ask anybody on the call or anybody in business said, if there's something that's guaranteed to give you more revenue, drive more profit, happier customers, happier employers, better stakeholders, and you can control it, wouldn't you do it? And nobody, nobody will say no to that. So I think we need to kind of flip it where, you know, the reality is you're not, you, you are failing in your fiduciary responsibility if you are not cultivating and helping foster diversity. And I want to say two other quick things, if that's okay. The first is, and a woman said this, not me, a couple decades ago, you know, talent is distributed equally, opportunity is not. If I was born in a developing country far away from a capital, there is no way I would be in this current role today. And the third thing, which, you know, I think we need to be intellectually honest about it, right? And, and, you know, I'm, uh, you know, white male. uh, I say that neutrally, not in a sense of wokeism. The business world historically has been run by people who look and, you know, are like me. Does any one of us truly believe if the business world historically and today were run primarily by women, that we wouldn't have more flexible child care and family policies and that there wouldn't be fewer outings at sports bars after work and replace women with people from different backgrounds, right? Different groups that are diverse and so forth. So the notion that fiduciary, it's better for your business should be paramount. The notion that it's also the right thing to do means that we need to think beyond just the folks when it comes to mind of, oh, in my network, because in our DNA, we have a bias to people that are like us as a survival instinct. And yet that's contrary to, to driving a, you know, performance in your business. And it takes additional work to do it, to go out of your way. So I, I have a deep commitment. I'm very proud of our event this year, Forbes Travel Guide, not by a quota, not DEI for its own sake, but looking for quality people and different voices in our industry will be 50% of the speakers will be women and fully a third non-gender specific will actually be of diverse backgrounds, be that people of color or other dimensions of culture, et cetera. Well, and like, you know, like you, Jersey, I grew up outside of Philly and, you know, there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of diversity in my high Mm -hmm. school. And uh, I then was fortunate when I went to FIU, I met a lot of international people. Then when I was done, I went to New York and that was kind of like the, you know, not that it changed me, but it just, you kind of realize there's good people, there's quality people, there's people who are super smart from all over the world and you just never got to see, meet them growing up. So it was, it was just, it was incredible for me. And David, that's exactly my experience growing up. And just, just like you, that's what Wesleyan was. So it, it, yeah. it's that widening your aperture on life that you're forever changed because of it. So another big topic, you're part of the world economic forum Global Future Council for Sustainability and Tourism. What are some of the things that you're seeing or objectives, initiatives around sustainability and hospitality that you feel are are, are making progress? Yeah. And I know right now it feels like areas of ESG and DEI are kind of the pendulum swinging back. I know there are certain concerted efforts. I'm not trying to be political, so I want to stay away from, regardless of whether you believe, I know the World Economic Forum for some people can be very 
political, you know, is net zero something with climate change? Does it exist or not? The, the reality is whether human, whatever your belief that, you know, you look at the, the temperatures and things in Europe last year, it is having a profound impact on travel and hospitality, sea levels, regardless of, you know, which side of the conversation you're on. Those are things that impact our industry that we need to rise to the occasion. I think there's also sometimes travel gets looked at as this kind of like nice to have, it's leisure. And so one of the things we're trying to do, in addition to dealing with how the industry responds and gets in front of and and gets, you know, as much as we can continues to work on improving the situation is this notion of, you know, travel has been in our DNA since time immemorial, right? People migrated for sustenance and food and then for trade and over time to learn and expand their horizons at a time that the world sometimes can't seem any more divisive where people are at each other and their wars going on in geopolitics. What chance do we as humanity stand if we can't go somewhere to stand in someone else's shoes and experience what I did in Japan or even on a smaller scale, David, what we did in our university experience and Steve, I'm sure many experiences in your life. And when you look at the loneliness epidemic, which technology is compounding in spite of the fact that people can connect, right? It's in real life. Our our biology has been wired a certain way in a very short span of time that's changing. So not not everything's black and white or a monolith. And and so again, I don't want to be Pollyanna or say all tech is good or all tech is bad. I believe this notion, 10% of GDP globally is the travel industry. One in four or five new jobs globally created is part of that. We were in Dubai, which I pointed out, even in the World Economic Forum leadership itself in the travel industry, a market that would otherwise not exist, at least as it does now, if not for travel and tourism. And at a time, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is investing and redefining sustainability and and all types of innovation, which is a global effort, not just them, right? A trillion dollars plus over the next 10 years. I believe it's it's this notion of elevating. And I you see it generationally. Younger people, there are economic reasons and uh, social political ones as well. But you know, this notion of after COVID of what do I need to be self-actualized as a human being? And not just in the big grand things. It could be, you know, in small things in my daily life, the shift to to business and leisure that's adding huge incremental demand, the shift to well-being and longevity and biohacking and all of these things that aren't just about physical, they're also about emotional well-being, right? Mental well-being. And so I feel very bullish about where we're going. I am concerned in the near to midterm of the impacts over tourism, things like climate that are impacting our ability to kind of have those experiences. Right. Absolutely. The big topic last year was, you know, labor shortage. Are we going to have kind of that same thing going into 2024 here? Or are we going to have some other issue come up that's going to be kind of the primary focus this year? Yeah, I think some are structural. There are many different factors. I think generationally, a little bit, unfortunately, because of social media, you know, it seems this notion of service has kind of fallen out. But there's also economic. We, We need to make it a viable career path 
where people can see it. I think flexible, the ability, not every role will be conducive, but you know, there was an article today about more funding for gig platforms. And I'm not suggesting that's primary, but if somebody wants to work or they can only work certain times because they have a kid, they have to pick up or drop off. The ability, I think, of the industry to more flexibly accommodate that and find ways. And I know there are people working at it, the, the big brands and, and independent companies. I think our structure of how staffing happens you imagine where you could have everybody where it's like, hey, they're, they're qualified on these PMS systems. They've worked at these brands, but they only have certain hours these days of the week and they'd love to be at your property. So I think some of it is that. I do think as a career, even before COVID and this crisis hit, things were upside down. You had most of the people going to hospitality schools like Cornell, which, you know, which I love with the amount of investment and then coming out understandably because you have to apprentice and learn it where the economics for many other people, a lot of those people would go into real estate or side because there was more money or they could pay the loans. So I think there's maybe broader, you know, e-learning and certification. And that's certainly an area of focus. We, we have e-learning to help train the industry, the notion of mobile first. So I think, I think we're catching up to many of the changes, but they don't change as quickly as society does or as we've had this shift. So I'm encouraged longer term, but I short to midterm, we still have a lot of chopping wood, right? And the X's and O's to keep working on. What do you guys think? I mean, you, you talk to far many more people. I'm sure your audience would love to hear kind of where, where you see things. You know, I, I've worked every job in a hotel. I lived on property in New York running hotels. And I think that is one of the challenge, unlike maybe Europe or even in Asia, where it's not a real career. It's a lot of like, hey, I'm going to do this till I get to something else. And I think that's a shame. And I think that, you know, I don't like the call out owners, but I think it's very ironic how when times are great, uh, <laughs> the wealth isn't shared across, you know, staff members, but yet during a COVID or something, there's all this, oh, we can't, we can't find people. And now housekeepers want more money. And it's like, well, you know, some of this retention could be if you actually shared some of the wealth and paid people and had a path for them to, to grow and make it a career, not a job. And I think that's what I always saw from being a, a manager was, you know, how do I get the people that I know want to become managers or move up? How do I guide them and help them do that? And I think the industry needs more of that. I agree 100%. And I think, I think we're going to have a shift of kind of like you said, David, we're going to think of hospitality as a career because there's so many folks dedicated towards leadership, whether that's, you know, focus, hotelier, focused on, you know, leadership and women, but there are so many more of these organizations focused on success and people growing within hospitality. So I think we're going to hopefully see that. And, you know, like you said, David, hopefully owners are going to start paying a little bit more so people aren't taken to other industries because they're going to make more money. You guys bring up to an, an interesting dynamic that I think is going on and I, I don't rejoice in it, but it's, it's an observation. I'm curious what you guys think. So I, I feel like there's this bifurcation between hospitality and accommodation, even in the hotel industry, driven a lot by a good you know, industry friend, Del Ross, as McKinsey talks about, you know, from a real estate investment, just as, as a pure financial return, the hotel investor has to make money. Otherwise, you know, they'd use it something else or they wouldn't build a hotel. And as a result of whether it's public or private equity ownership, the push, you know, for, for profits, labor, where costs are going up. And I don't say that as a negative. I grew up, you know, where I worked in factories is people don't have a livable wage in many right areas or enough given the cost of living. So that's a disconnect too. That's a matter of it. 
So it feels like much like the airline industry, where if you want to have a better experience, the economy used to be okay, but you don't have really human touch where if you're going to have to spend money on business class or spend enough money to be a frequent flyer. And it feels like outside of boutique and luxury and certain countries that may have certain economics with labor be developing or places like Japan and Thailand where culturally, for examples, not the only places, it's imbued as part of the culture that if you want to have a more human experience, it's kind of getting pushed out into corners. There are brands that aren't like that, like Drury, uh, where Chuck Drury, I know, where that's kind of Midwest, you know, value Southwest did it in low cost airlines. So again, I'm not suggesting it's everyone. And I know the big brands are doing a lot of things trying to enable technology, but a lot of things now are like opt-in house or grab and go, opt-in housekeeping, or no, it's like self-service or no service. And so you can still build stuff around that and have a great experience. Even like if I stay at a Hampton Inn, some people have weddings there, different price points, but it's getting harder. It feels like to provide human hospitality as much outside of those. And I wonder what, what you guys think about that premise. Well, it's, I think it's about the people. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, so it's kind of funny because on one hand, our industry as a whole is scared of technology because they think it's going to hinder the experience and the relationship and what hospitality is supposed to mean. But then I travel all the time and, you know, I'm just like, there's no service here. Like what would be the difference between a kiosk asking me for a credit card and my ID or a person? If that person's not interacting with me, there's no emotional connection that I always tell people I had a overnight flight to Heathrow stated a citizen M checked myself in was super happy. Cause I could go right back down to the bar and that checking in quick got me to the bar and I had a great experience there. It didn't take away from the hotel. I love the hotel because I didn't need someone to like take my credit card and take my ID. You know, I did it myself, but then the bartender, the staff was great. And you know, I felt, you know, you could ask questions about the, you know, it was an area of London I hadn't been to. So, you got to be in this business if you want to be in this business and you like people. Um, <laughs> if you don't, just get out and go do something else because it just it taints the rest of the industry. You know the, you know, I, you know. I always tell people I've had better service at a Dunkin' Donuts than I have at a four star hotel. Yeah, I, I'm. All, I'm. A, I don't want to go on too much, but I, I'm a huge proponent of giving guests the option of how they want to utilize technology. You know, offering it if if that fits your hotel, but not making it the the center the focal point of your stay, it it's always about people, right? And David and I have had similar experiences at Citizen M where, you know, we want to get in quick, but there's people standing around that are always so willing to help. And in Washington, D.C., that person made an incredible experience for me. I think you guys, that's the conundrum. You guys, I, I, I like the way you both articulated it. So, you know, nobody wants to go back to a mile or kilometer long line at the airport for three seconds of eye contact and a paper ticket versus 30 seconds in an app. But we want the rest where the fewer people that remain or to build more human connection around that. So remove the frictions. Matthew from Virtuoso, the CEO, talks about, you know, automating kind of that, you know, more pedantic to, to be able to focus on the exceptional. I, I love and I'm uh, butchering his more eloquent quote, um, but people should look it up because uh, I think you guys hit it on the head. That's really resonant for me. Awesome. 
Awesome. Well, this is great. I feel like we could have a conversation for another hour. But um, one thing I want to get to is John. He has been sitting by this whole time. He has one final question for you, Stuart, and then we'll let you go. Great. Sounds great. Hey, great to see you, John. My question is, you know, as somebody who or as an organization and somebody involved in an organization who creates these travel guides and all these things, are there like for sure tangibles things that you look for that really set things apart or what are maybe some of those like really tangible things versus intangible things that kind of tip the scales? Really great question. I think one of the things and I appreciate, um, you know, we didn't talk about this, so it's perfect is, you know, when, when we go out and evaluate hotels around the world or spas, restaurants, ocean cruises, 70% of that is based on the service because you know, Daniel Langer is a, a famous uh, professor of luxury at NYU and Pepperdine. And this is true, even if you're not in luxury, you know, talks about, you know, the product was, you know, astonishing all of this, but, you know, the service wasn't there. It's what David and Steve were talking about. It's kind of soulless, the connection. So, you know, luxury in particular, great product is table stakes. And, and, and there are places that wow you, you might go to, but the question is, what would make you want to go back with so many other amazing, beautiful properties around the world more and more every day. And it's going to be that human connection and that service, which is why I believe, you know, we've talked about everything from technology and social media to, you know, owners and price and labor and wages. And you talk about what matters. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. And, you know, how do you make me as your guest or each one of us wants to feel welcome like family? Uh, well, maybe not my family because I'm from New Jersey, but it's a different story, right? We, we, we want to feel seen and heard and valued and be respected and not in a, you know, I'm special kind of way, but just as human beings. And I think, you know, that's always been and will always be no matter the technology. You know, David talked about going down to the bar at Citizen M because that's where they sh- the human connection. So they want to expedite the part that matters less. Let's get David to his room so he can get to the things quickly that he has more time to enjoy, right? Connecting at the bar with other people, with the bartender, and maybe with uh, Sir Johnny Walker Black. I don't know. I'm projecting. Oh, yeah. Right. Yep. yeah, I can go get, get it from my <laughs> liquor cabinet right now. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So before we end, we can always cut this out, but it's hilarious because you've, you've taken plenty of shots at New Jersey. I, I lived in New Jersey for many years, but growing up outside of Philadelphia, when I moved to New York and in New Jersey, I refused to change my driver's license. <laughs> so my car had PA plates and I had a, dr- a Pennsylvania driver's license. And everyone was like, you're crazy. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't like, I don't like having one license plate on the back. I don't like the one on the front. And I'm like, you know, just growing up, I was always like a PA guy. But anyway. So. We're all like Philly, New Jersey, New York, Long Island. It's like we're all cousins, you know, not, not like my wife's family in Arkansas. That's a different story. <laughs> big thing for me is always just the food. Like everyone says like, what's the one thing you don't like about Phoenix? And I'm like, it's not the same type of food. I can't get good pizza. I can't, you know, there's only so many restaurants and you know, when you're going to restaurants in New York, people are dressed nicer and you come out here and there's like, you're at like a f- nice restaurant. People are in shorts and flip flops and you're like, eh, it's kind of the anyway, Bay area. But, thank thank yeah. you for wearing uh, only your four day old hoodie that hasn't been washed. So, <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for another episode of The Modern Hotelier. This is where, Stuart, you get to plug away, let people know how they can find out or connect to you, find out more about Forbes. So the floor is yours. 
Yeah, I uh, shared a bit about what we do. Um, we're so passionate about the industry and supporting service excellence. You can go to ForbesTravelGuide.com and you can check out all of the hotels, spas, restaurant, ocean cruises that have been highly verified and vetted by us. And then for myself, reach out on LinkedIn is uh, the best way. I'm pretty active on there and I love to share things that I think that are interesting um, and seems to be resonating with folks out there and let me know what you think as well. So um, thank you all and and your audience as well for the opportunity to share and feel free to keep in uh, as much of the New Jersey uh, jokes as you like. That's part of our DNA. So you got it. Awesome. Thank you, Stuart. That does it for another episode of the Modern Hotelier. Hope to see everyone again soon. Thank you. You made it to the end of the Modern Hotelier. Thanks for listening. The Modern Hotelier is produced by Make More Media. Make sure to like and subscribe if you're listening on YouTube or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you know a guest or sponsor that would be a good fit, feel free to email us at hello at themodernhotelier.com. If you'd like to get some Modern Hotelier merch, click the merch button on modernhotelier.com or click the link below. Thanks and have a great day.